0: Leadership Next is powered by the folks at Deloitte, who, like me, are exploring the changing rules of business leadership and how CEOs are navigating this change. Welcome to Leadership Next, the podcast about the changing rules of business leadership. I'm Alan Murray.
1: And I'm Michal Avram. Alan, I see you're back in New York after a whirlwind few days in DC. There was so much going on there, including our very own Fortune CEOI conference. Um, I wasn't able to attend, and I always have major FOMO when I miss any of our live events. But I want to know, how was it? What were the highlights?
0: It well, was, it was really, really good. So for listeners who don't know, the Fortune CEO Initiative was created seven years ago to give CEOs of purpose-driven companies that really want to focus on improving their positive social impact on society, give them a forum where they could exchange ideas and best practices. We had about hundred CEOs in the room and a a, a killer program, Uh, you know, uh, we're going to do a couple of those interviews here in a moment. But the thing I want to tell you is, I mean, we were talking about uh, climate programs. We were talking about the political backlash against diversity, equity, and inclusion. Uh, We had the secretary of commerce and the secretary of treasury uh, talking about uh, the new industrial policy. But we kept coming back again and again to your favorite topic, which is generative AI. It's clearly so obsessing the minds of business leaders right now. It was actually almost hard to get away from it.
1: Okay, well, you did cover a lot of ground though, and I know AI is super top of mind, um, but one of the interviews that we're really interested in sharing with all of you uh, was an interview that our editor-in-chief, Allison Chantel, did with Johnson & Johnson CEO, Joaquin Duato. Tell us a little bit about that one.
0: Well, it it was a great interview. Allison did a really nice job. I mean, the thing about Johnson & Johnson is it has been a purpose-driven company for many years. It has this famous credo that uh, that they really train everyone at the company in. And Joaquin was a perfect representative of that credo. I think you'll get that in this conversation.
1: And just for some background, uh, Joaquin became CEO of J&J in early 2022, but he joined the company 34 years ago as part of Janssen Pharmaceuticals in his native Spain. Um, He took over the company during a pretty rocky time for J&J when the U.S. government had phased out the company's COVID-19 vaccine. Um, That hurt its pharmaceutical division. There are some other hurdles as well, including, uh, you know, we all know about this uh, settlement nine billion dollar class action lawsuit um, alleging that J and J's baby powder had caused cancer. So, lots of hurdles there. And I'm curious, after listening to his conversation with Allison, do you think Duato is up to the task?
0: I thought he was impressive. I mean, Allison definitely asked him about the challenges that you talked about um, and how he led in the face of this uh, kind of tumult, uh, and he was very straight and very clear. Um, Uh, And again, hearken back to the Johnson & Johnson credo and its purpose, and then went on to say that he thinks the company is actually about to enter its golden era.
1: Well, here it is, the first of two interviews we're going to bring out from CEOI Johnson & Johnson's Joaquin DiWato in conversation with Fortune Editor-in-Chief Allison Chantel. And later on, we're going to also hear from Janet Yellen, which is... Alan, I hear you have
2: a special relationship with.
0: More on that later. Let's listen to Joaquin Duato.
2: Well, Joaquin, thank you so much for being here with thank us Thank you, Alison. Um, You've been in, so first I should note, Johnson & Johnson uh, has been one of 49 companies to be in the Fortune 500 list every single year since we've made it, since 1955. Um, This year they clocked in at number 40. Um, As Alan said, the healthcare and pharma markets have been booming. Um, And you've been in the job for two years, but you've been at the company for 34, so you've seen quite a bit. Um, Two years in, what's your primary focus and biggest surprise since becoming CEO?
3: Thank you, and um, it's, uh, I'm proud to be uh, the CEO of Johnson & Johnson. In our 138 years of history, we have had only eight CEOs, uh, and I am the first one who is not born in the US, so I'm proud to represent that. And uh, certainly, it's a great legacy that we have had during this period. So in becoming CEO of Johnson & Johnson, uh, I have a dual purpose. One is to uh, remain a company that is true to our mission of addressing uh, difficult to treat diseases, um, and the other one is to be able to continue to be a company which is principle-based, people-based, and maintains the reputation that we have had during such a long period of time.
2: Now, is it true that you didn't get the job at first? I mean, not the CEO job, but you initially, when you were interviewing 34 years ago, yeah. they said no.
3: It's true, I, when I finished graduate school, I interviewed with Johnson & Johnson, uh, and I didn't make it to the second interview. So um, then I, I joined another company, a pharmaceutical company, and eventually found my way back to uh, Johnson & Johnson, and I've been here for 34 years.
2: Yeah, I mean, the longevity of your career there, I think, is telling, and the attrition rate is shockingly low at Johnson & Johnson, right?
3: Yeah, it's, it's very low. Uh, it's lower than the industry and our peer companies. And I think there's a number of reasons for having low attrition. One is the size of the company that enables people to work in different sectors and have careers within Johnson & Johnson. Sometimes I say Johnson & Johnson has its internal job market. The other one is that people simply like to work for Johnson & Johnson. Uh, Our engagement levels are high. People like to work for a company with a purpose in healthcare. We are a company that pays a lot of attention to inclusion, so everybody feels good when they come to work. And certainly, we like to believe that we are a caring company, that we care not only for the patients, but we also care for each other. So we we try to have a a strong health and wellness offering for our employees. So overall, people like working in Johnson & Johnson and stay longer in Johnson & Johnson. Our average tenure, for example, in the US is more than a decade. So people can do careers and, and we are happy of that. We, we, we are glad that people like to stay at Johnson & Johnson longer.
2: Mm. So when you became CEO, and even in your memo to become CEO, you'd said, I think we should spin out the consumer business. Um, you know, Johnson & Johnson can compete with L'Oreal there, but should it? And so could you speak a little bit about Kenview, which is the company that you spun out just earlier this year, it's now publicly traded. Um, how you, why you did that? Um, why is return to focus important for Johnson Johnson versus diversification of businesses?
3: Yeah, so Kenview is our consumer company. So when you think about the Johnson & Johnson and the brands that you know about Johnson & Johnson, Band-Aids, Tylenol, or baby shampoo, now they are all in Kenview. Why did we decided to uh, separate Kenview and create a global consumer champion with Kenview? Because we thought that uh, focusing on the consumer market and focusing on healthcare was going to deliver better results for consumers and for patients. Uh, for us, it was very complex to be able to compete with L'Oréal, as you mentioned, uh, in skincare, and at the same time competing in biologics with biopharmaceutical companies and in surgical robotics with medical technology companies. So we thought there was a benefit for Johnson and Johnson to be exclusively focused on healthcare on research and development, on innovation, and that was going to create uh, a better platform for us to be true to our mission, not only in the next two or three years or post IPO, but during a long period of time.
2: Mm. One thing I do want to make sure I hit on is, um, R&D is a huge part of Johnson & Johnson. what are you seeing in the space? You've said that this is the golden era um, for your business, that there will be more change and more uh, positive movements towards curing disease um, over the next few years than you've seen in the last number of decades. Um, so what are you seeing that's exciting? What are the innovations, and, and what are you doing with things like robotics, AI? How is that all changing the industry?
3: Yeah, so r is the... The, the heart of an innovation-based company. Uh, last year we invested 14.6 billion dollars in RD and Johnson and Johnson. We are one of the largest, if not the largest, inver- investor in RD in life sciences. Um, what we see now, it's a combination of more knowledge on the biology and genetics of disease with an acceleration of that due to technology. Uh, things like um, artificial intelligence, machine learning, and now generative AI, it's helping us accelerate uh, drug discovery, and it's helping us also making medical technologies smarter. Uh, in the surgical side, uh, surgeons are now able to utilize robotic-assisted techniques, better visualization, better sensors. They, those instruments are connected, they can provide them insights, and they can significantly improve the average outcome of surgery. Mm-hmm. So those are things that are going to help uh, m- accelerate discovery and progress in healthcare in a way that we have not seen in the last century.
2: Mm. And one thing, we had a-, a lunch previously, and you had mentioned, you know, imagine knee surgery, but being done by maybe a robot versus a surgeon. I mean, think about the precision needed. I might prefer a robot for something like that than someone with a potentially shaky hand. It's-
3: Absolutely, all our instruments now have uh, some component of uh, uh, intelligence or connectivity. So our instruments now have sensors that can uh, measure pressure, temperature, have visualization capabilities, which at the end of the day is is software, is digital, that give an idea of the surgeon of where are they in, uh, are they going to interfere with a critical structure, and all that can be visualized And we can even provide uh, guidance to the surgeon real time of where they have to go. So that's going to be transformational in the way we do surgery. And it's going to help improving the outcomes of a procedure, which is very common. I'm sure in the audience, every one of you have had some type of surgery during your life. So that's important if we can improve the outcomes and the quality of surgery. Mm. When I think about what we can do as a company, uh, we have the range of technologies to be able to do what no other company can do. We can do cell therapy, but we can do robotic surgery. We can do, uh, we can do genetic or mRNA therapeutics, and we can do also smart implants. Mm. Uh, so there's a lot of things that we can do as a company based on the number of technologies and capabilities that we have.
2: Mm. So as the leader of a company, you have to lead in good times and in bad, and with a company as large as Johnson & Johnson, there are hard things. And there are lawsuits. Um, You've had talcum powder lawsuits, opioid crisis to deal with, Um, COVID, um, you know, having your vaccine essentially be uh, dismantled. How do you lead in those hard times? How do you encourage your team to not lose morale, um, to stay focused, um, stay focused on the mission when there's a lot of hardship around?
3: Yeah. We do it with conviction. Uh, conviction on the principles of uh, our credo that by the way, this year is the 80th anniversary of that the the credo was written. and uh, We do it by having a trajectory of uh, more than 100 years in which we have always tried to do the right thing for the patient. When we uh, make a mistake, we take responsibility and when the facts, uh, the science and the law are on our side, we stand by uh, our products and we have been able to manage this um, this balance during many years. But the people in the company working at Johnson & Johnson have a genuine passion of doing the right thing, and we don't do it for the recognition. We do it because we have convictions, and those convictions normally help an organization to manage change. I'm convinced that purpose-driven organizations are much better in managing change, and our organization has a strong tradition of being a purpose-driven one. We, internally, we say we are the original mission-driven company based on the fact that our credo was written 80 years ago. 80 years ago, talking about putting the patient first, the employees, the communities, and then if you do the right thing, uh, it's gonna be good for the shareholder. was was very innovative, very different. So I think that that's part of the energy that people at Johnson & Johnson have in order to navigate the ups and downs that anything in life, it's going to present you with. Mm
2: That was a really
1: interesting conversation. Um, I think Joaquin put in such plain language everything that we explore here on Leadership Next when he said purpose-driven companies are better equipped to manage change. And Alan, I'm wondering if you have thoughts about that.
0: Well, obviously I agree with that, but I think the other thing that I, I thought he captured very well was just the sense and there were other leaders in other industries who who conveyed this same sense at the conference, that we are on the cusp of something very big here in terms of technological transformation. It it will mean a lot to companies like his uh, in the healthcare business.
1: Yeah, and I think it's uh, obviously always been a very competitive landscape in J&J's space, but it was interesting to me that he also talked about some consumer giants like L'Oreal as a competitor today. And by the way, little teaser here, we have the CEO of L'Oreal on an upcoming episode.
0: Looking forward to that one. I'm sorry I had to miss that interview, Mahal.
1: Well, you can you get to have FOMO too, Alan, once in a while. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I do. <laughs> Jason Garzadas, the CEO of Deloitte U.S., is the sponsor of this podcast and joins me today. Welcome, Jason. Thank you, Alan. It's great to be here. Jason, our ideas about work, where we work, when we work, how we work, all of those have continued to evolve since the pandemic. Is that a problem for business or is it an opportunity for business?
4: That's a massive opportunity. Although I think that the answer is less clear, it is a profound set of challenges to be sure. But in the end, it's an opportunity to create a workplace, particularly in the face of more long-term systemic talent workforce constraints and limitations that brings out the best of a workforce so people can be their genuine self at work, can have heightened levels of productivity, and feel supported in all that they do. But I don't think the models are clear, and we're seeing lots of experimentation, whether that's around hybrid and what does it mean to actually co-locate and what degree of co-location matters. It's also a function of how does technology get embedded into the workplace such that employees and workforces feel supported and enabled. And also the cultural elements related to diversity, equity, and and feeling supported to be your genuine self at work. It's the combination, Alan, of all those factors that leading companies will innovate around and find novel ways to bring together that will be highly desirous of leading talent and will be a differentiator in terms of businesses using their workplace and their work processes to win in new and different ways.
0: Jason, thanks for your perspective and thanks for sponsoring Leadership Next.
4: Thank you.
1: So, Alan, the next conversation we're sharing with our listeners is with someone who, to you, is not just the secretary of the Treasury or the former chair of the Federal Reserve. So tell us, how do you know Janet Yellen?
0: Well, it was a long time ago, and I'm not going to say how long it was because that'll say something about both my age and her age. But uh, I, I got a master's degree in economics at the London School of Economics. And it happened to be the same year she had just gotten married, and she and her new husband, George Akerlof, team-taught my macroeconomics course. Uh, so for six months, I would go in uh, every day and get a uh, what I'm sure was a brilliant but completely incomprehensible lecture from George Akerlof. And then in the afternoon, Janet Yellen would come in and tidy it all up. And I, I, I said to the Secretary of the Treasury, that what little I know about macroeconomics, I know from her.
1: Not from her husband. <laughs> Not from her husband. I'm,
0: he's brilliant. Everyone tells me he's brilliant. So I'm sure he must be. <laughs> and hopefully you
1: got a good grade.
0: I did. I did. I did very well. And, and, and she said that it was an honor to have me as a student, which I suspect she says to all her students, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take it as a, a, as a personal uh, accolade.
1: But uh, but this was very exciting. She, she joined you on stage actually just a few days after the government narrowly avoided shutting down. Um, it was a, a, a thrilling few days for all of us. Um, and overall, it's, it's just a really complicated time for the U.S. and for the U.S. economy for a number of reasons. Um, you know, as we're seeing this unfold, it's gotten even more complex. So as a whole, did you walk away thinking she was optimistic about the state of the economy?
0: Uh, two things. One is, I think she's optimistic, and two is, she's still the same person who sat at the who stood at the front of that classroom uh, so many years ago, and can take very complicated subjects and make them sound very simple and clear. So it's worth listening to. Here she is, Secretary of the Treasury Janet Yellen. So good to see you. Great to see
5: yeah. you, Edward. Really,
0: really appreciate you being here. So. We had a wild weekend, you had a wild weekend.
5: (laughs) (laughs) We're waiting to see whether the government would stay open or or uh, shut down. down.
0: And and really all that happened was they kicked the ball down the road 45 days and Moody's is threatening to, to, uh, to downgrade US debt. So I guess the first question for you is, is this mess gonna change the relative optimism you had about the US economic
5: outlook? Look, I'm very optimistic about the U.S. economic outlook. Short-term, inflation is coming down in the context of an extremely strong labor market, what people would normally call a soft landing. Um,
0: Which is amazing, by the way. It hardly ever happens.
5: Correct. (laughs) And um, it's great because, of course, we want to see inflation come down. It's been burdening Americans but we wanna maintain the good, strong labor market that we have, and we seem to be on that kind of path. And medium term, um, we're now engaging in a very substantial program of investments to strengthen our economy, to boost our productive capacity, to boost uh, productivity growth, to draw more American workers into the labor market, and to address longstanding structural problems like um, climate change and inequality uh, across people, races, and places.
0: I, I, I want to talk about that, but before I do, I suppose I should let this group in on a little secret about our past. <laughs> <Uh-oh>. <laughs> uh oh. Yeah, which, which I hesitate to do because it it, it highlights. Uh, my age and may then also highlight your age, but I have a master's degree in economics, which I got at the London School of Economics, for which was the one year that Secretary Yellen taught there. So, she, <laughs> she taught what little I know about macroeconomics, <laughs> I learned from Janet Yellen. It was an honor and,
5: to have you and
0: as a student. I have wonderful memories of you drawing ISLM curves and Phillips curves on that Excellent. big blackboard.
5: Great tools. Uh,
0: <laughs> so, so I, I asked this question with that in mind. The people who almost hung us up this weekend are concerned about government spending. We have a budget deficit of one and a half trillion dollars. If I had said to you back when we were at the London School of Economics that we were gonna end up in that place, I think you would have used your curves to show me that's not a good scenario. So how is it that that's okay?
5: Okay, that's a great question. And as Treasury Secretary, I feel it's my job to worry about fiscal sustainability. So I do think it's critical that we establish spending and revenue targets that put us on a path where fiscal policy is sustainable and a path that's consistent with solid solid growth. And um, I believe at the moment we're on such a path. So one way to judge it, because our economy is now all about big numbers and a trillion is certainly a big number. Trillion and a half. (laughs) um, Our economy has a large GDP and so forth. I think the metric that I think is most relevant to judging fiscal sustainability is the amount that we're spending to service the debt, real net interest payments as a share of GDP. How much of our GDP goes to service the debt? And the answer um, over the next 10 years in the mid-session review, which is the most recent budget forecasts that the administration prepared, the answer is 1%. So real net interest as a share of GDP is about 1%. That's historically completely normal. Um, Some guidelines would say try to keep it under 2%, but it's 1% for the next decade. Now, I will say that that budget does assume meaningful deficit reduction over the net next 10 years. There were $3 trillion of deficit reduction incorporated into it, along with a significant program of investments in our economy, but ones that are financed by collecting greater revenues in a way that we think is fair, where the burden largely falls on corporations and very high income taxpayers.
0: And I do want to come back to the in investment piece of it. But before I do, I mean, the other thing that that assumption depends on is how high, how long do, uh, do interest rates uh, stay? Which is a big issue, not just for the government, but for any company that's carrying a substantial amount of debt. How long, are, how, how long are we going to, you know, are we going to have to roll over all our debt at rates that are double what we initially had? So, well, that's... so, so tell them the answer. <laughs> the answer is
5: I don't know. and um, it, it's a great it's a great question and it's one that's very much on my and the administration's minds. Um, you know when the administration came in, it was the pandemic we had had um, all, a decade of interest rates, short-term interest rates were zero, long-term interest rates higher but very much lower than today's interest rates, and the interest burden was um, almost non-existent at that point. Now, the forecasts we've made assume that uh, interest rates will rise toward more normal levels, but we are seeing, especially over the last several months, a pretty significant increase in not only 10-year nominal yields, but also real yields. Uh, There's a question mark just why that is. Um, Are
0: we going back to something that looks more like the history prior to 10 years ago than the last 10 years? That's
5: right. And that's a very, I mean, that's a very important question. One view is that it may take a longer period of somewhat higher interest rates to control inflation to keep it down, but medium-term interest rates will go back to more normal levels. It's also possible that um, longer term interest rates will be higher than we thought. But I would point out that for many decades, the level of real interest rates, not only in the United States, but in many advanced economies had been moving down. Yeah. And it was felt by most economists that there were strong structural reasons why that was occurring.
0: You know, this is why I loved you as a teacher way back when, because you could <laughs> explain to me both sides of the equation. The other thing we've been talking about here uh, today is the extraordinarily quick adoption of generative AI technology. I think Eric Brynjolfsson said earlier that most waves of technology take like 10 years before you start to see him in the productivity numbers, he thinks this one's going to be much faster. We've seen, we've heard lots of anecdotal evidence of huge productivity gains. If I studied my books correctly way back then, uh, uh, big increases in productivity could make a huge difference to all the things we're talking about, growth, inflation, et cetera. We've had disappointing productivity for the last decade. Are, are we on the verge of something significantly better?
5: So. I will say I'm not an expert in AI. Um, From what I understand, as you just said, the progress in this area is unbelievably rapid. And I think it could make a significant difference. Um, As an administration, as a country, we're also working on a whole set of investments that should be productivity boosting over the medium term we're addressing the problem of crumbling roads and highways and in an in infrastructure that really hasn't been um, appropriately, appropriately designed for a modern economy. Um, we have a huge, you know, we passed really a trifecta of legislation, the bipartisan infrastructure bill, the Chips and Semiconductor Act, and then the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, so we're investing in R&D um, in ways we haven't in decades, uh, restoring U.S. leadership in science and technology. Um, we have a huge program of incentives so for clean energy So you're betting on investment. a significant increase in productivity? Yes, but let me be careful because productivity growth, usually a tenth or two here or there, is regarded as a big, a big thing. So I don't want to pull numbers out of a hat that are gigantic. Um, I think there will be a payoff, but I don't want to exaggerate.
1: Alan, Secretary Yellen does sound optimistic, but I'm curious, what about you? How are you feeling about the current state of the economy? Um, Not just after your conversation with her, but after CEOI in general and after spending a few days in our nation's capital?
0: Oh, Mahal, it's a complicated question. It, 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 <laughs> it, it was certainly mixed. I mean, it is pretty remarkable given that every CEO we talked to six months ago was predicting a recession that we are where we are, not in a recession. It looks like the fabled soft landing may actually happen. And that's what she thinks. And and I agree with her. But that doesn't mean there aren't some storm clouds on the horizon. Uh. Uh, certainly the fact that interest rates are as high as they are and seem to be staying there. And so anybody with lots of debt is going to be saddled with extra costs. And we're probably going to see bankruptcies and, uh, other problems. And she talked about that some as well. Uh, uh, but on the good side, going back to AI.
1: Wait, bankruptcies <laughs> and, and other problems. Yeah, this oh, sounds and great.
0: W- and war too. <laughs> you know, we got into geopolitics, but on the good side, mm-hmm. and this goes back to AI, uh, the, the potential for big improvements in, in productivity and, and the macroeconomic effects that has helping to bring down inflation and increase growth was on everybody's mind.
1: Yeah, it, it was really interesting. you know I got to watch snippets from afar and follow the coverage and uh, like you said at the top, I mean AI was kind of this this thread um, throughout and definitely a silver lining. I know obviously there's a lot to be worked out there and a lot of risks and concerns, but also tons of opportunities which we heard from both you know the DC types and the business types.
0: Uh, Jennifer Tejada, who you know, who's the CEO of PagerDuty and was our co-chair for the conference, led a town hall discussion on the AI topic. And she said, uh, and I thought this captured it perfectly, that most uh, uh, of the big company CEOs seem to be caught somewhere between FOMO, fear of missing out, and FOGI, fear of getting in. (laughs) And I thought that was a a perfect way of capturing the, the moment.
1: And, well, we all need new acronyms in our lives, so um, <laughs> thank you, Jennifer, for that. We definitely want to keep our listeners up to date as the way leaders lead continues to evolve and as the world does, and of course, as AI enters the frame more and more.
0: Uh, we certainly will, Mahal, and we'll see you next week on a new episode of Leadership Next. Leadership Next is edited and produced by Alexis Hot. Our theme is by Jason Snell. Our executive producer is Megan Arnold. Leadership Next is a product of Fortune Media.